HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and on the phone with me today is the dynamic, the charismatic, the wonderful Jim Pinn, that's P-Y-N-N. He is the superintendent of the Newtown Creek Wastewater Treatment Plant in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Jim, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for taking some time out of your day today for me. Thank you, Katie. Love talking about wastewater. That's my cup of tea. I (laughs) love... Or rather, your cup of sludge. I love talking wastewater, and I was so impressed when I went on the Valentine's Day tour of the uh, Newtown Creek Wastewater Treatment Plant, not only because of the beautiful design of the um, of the eggs, of the digester eggs, but also because you took us through the most fascinating uh, thumbnail history of New York City water treatment um, in the most interesting and swift way possible. And I'm going to ask you to just do that quickly again. Like, tell people, tell listeners, how does this all work? We have like a very simplistic old design, and yet it seems to work pretty well. So can you um, just start us off with like a basic thumbnail sketch of our system? Sure, no problem. Uh, We didn't want to reinvent the wheel because the wheel in the beginning of time was pretty simple and it worked very well. So as most eastern coast cities, New York City is an old city that had a lot of old infrastructure, that the main purpose of that infrastructure was to take the wastewater from the streets and the homes once they had indoor plumbing and flush it out into the receiving waters, the East River, the Hudson River, the Harlem River, Jamaica Bay, the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. And doing so created pollution of an enormous load for almost 150 to 200 years. And as modern wastewater came around and we hooked up these 14 treatment plants to those series of pipes, we changed the way we treated our, our wastewater dramatically and, in fact, then changed the condition of our, waste, of our waters around New York City. So the process is extremely simple. We rely on gravity and a little bit of biological action to do all the work for us. So I'll take you through the steps. Great. Waste, wastewater leaves your home under the form of gravity. When you flush or throw something down the, the drain, on its own inertia, it leaves your home and goes into the street 
and the street has a series of pipes that are pitched or sloped ever increasingly smaller and smaller, but a little bit at a time as it, until it reaches the treatment plant. Once it gets to the treatment plant, it's about 75 feet below the ground. Wow. Our, our initial step is to pump that water up to the surface or approximately to the surface area where we start the treatment. Now, the treatment involves the first step is screening. Screens are large mechanical devices that interface with the wastewater stream and pick up any large objects that might have gotten collected through the sewer system. Now, it's not so much how much you could put down through your toilet or your sink in your home. That's not what we're worried about. But because we're a combined sewer system, the catch basins on the corners have, a, have the ability to pick up very large objects, and we need to filter those out, especially when a rainstorm occurs because the rain is carried down on the gutters and the curbs of the street and picks up any litter or debris, and that could work its way into the treatment plant, as it does. It's a good thing, but it does. So the screens help filter out that heavy, floatable material that would get in the way of the treatment. So the screens are the first step. The next thing we do is we have to take out what we refer to as grit. Grit is mostly sand and silt. It's the wearing down of the surfaces of the city of New York. As a homeowner, you're required to sweep your sidewalk once in a while. I'm sure that each and every one of our listeners have come up with a dustpan full of heavy material every time they sweep their sidewalk. That's the wearing away of the surfaces as we work, walk, play in New York. Amazing. That material is detrimental to the treatment plant. So the second thing we do in wastewater treatment is we remove this grit. And gravity is our friend there. By placing the wastewater into these series of small tanks for 11 minutes, the grit settles out. It, it drops to the bottom. We're able to collect it separately in a slurry solution and deal with it, separate it, clean it, and send it into containers for landfill. But the remaining sewage, the mostly organic material that we've eaten or during our preparation of food or in restaurants when they prepare food, that material is still in a solution. It's still in the water column, and it needs further treatment. So the third step in wastewater treatment is the biological process. And that's where we use the magic, I call it, the magic of our wastewater environment in the form of the microbes. Our bodies contain millions and millions of microorganisms. And as we waste our, our extra food from our bodies into the sewer system, I have a way of collecting those microorganisms and using them to the benefit of treating more wastewater. It sounds a little complicated, but it's, it's pretty easy. Mm -hmm. Let's assume yesterday a whole bunch of wastewater came in, and I did my thing and treated it. When I separate out the, the organic solids with all those microbes in them, I send some of that material to the digester eggs that you spoke about, Katie, in the introduction of the broadcast and right. what most people saw on their Valentine's Day tour of the treatment plant. So about half of it goes to those digesters. But the other half is used in a way I inject it back into the sewage stream. And the reason I do that is because those microorganisms are hungry still. They're nurturing. They're, they're dying to get some more food. And the food that our bodies produce when they waste out is just the right type of menu for them. So by saving half of the microorganisms and injecting them back into the sewage, I'm able to then remove the food that stays in the suspension. And the way we do that is by putting them in this aeration tank. And what I've described in the past about the aeration tank, it's similar to a, um, what most people would have in their home or in school, a fish tank. You have an air stone and, and you're able to allow the fish to live in the environment, and there's a, a gravelly base. And in that gravel, the fish waste gets deposited. But along with that waste are microorganisms. And by adding air to the water, you help those microorganisms grow, 
to get bigger, and then they start to consume the waste that the fish has left on a daily basis. You feed the fish, they waste. You feed the fish, they waste. So by having this process there, you have your own little biosystem going on, just like my big tanks here right. at the treatment plant. Right. So after about two and a half to three hours worth of aeration time, these microorganisms have consumed all of the extra food that you and I gave to me here in the plant in the form of sewage, <laughs> and they're heavy enough now to settle out. They settle out just like the grit settled out in the previous part of the treatment. They sink to the bottom. I'm able to collect them. So that's the process of the fourth. Now, just in case some of those microorganisms didn't eat enough and they're still suspended in that water column, I want to make sure that when I discharge the wastewater to the East River that none of those microbes are still alive because those microorganisms, not only are they good workers for me, but they also carry disease diseases that were prevalent throughout the history of New York before wastewater treatment. Like what, Jim? cholera. Yeah, right. And in order for us to prevent those diseased microorganisms from going back into the receiving waters, the East River, in my case, I disinfect that wastewater with chlorine bleach, the same type of bleach you'd use at home to whiten your clothing. I use an abundance of that in order to treat the wastewater before it finally gets discharged into the East River. And That's should people, one second though, let me ask you this. Should people be concerned that there's a ton of chlorine in the water, or does it just off-gas? It, it turns. Well, no, that's, that's a good question, and many people are concerned about that. But we closely monitor the amount of chlorine we use, mm-hmm. and um, so there's very little what we refer to as residual chlorine left. Right. But it is a concern, and the, and the department is entering an agreement with the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, and within a couple of years we're going to start adding another chemical that will completely remove any excess chlorine after it's done its disinfection. And that's a future program just because some citizens are concerned about the the excess use of chlorine into the receiving waters. Are you concerned about that, Jim, personally? Or do you think that's just like consumers being excessively cautious and it's not really necessary, but you're going to toss them a bone anyway? Well, no, it's it's actually based on science. Now, Mm -hmm. I limit very closely the amount that's used. And there are some studies that say because my outfall, the pipe that removes the wastewater to the East River, uh, is almost three-quarters of a mile long, that the rest of the chlorine is, consu- is consumed or oxidized uh-huh. in the organic matter by the time it gets to the East River. But because we're not able to sample the wastewater at the East River, it's already been mixed in with the salt water or the fresh water of the East River, uh, some people are concerned. So it's probably, it's probably a good move and the right step, and sure. I, I don't think it's a bad decision. And uh, I'm for it. Good. That's cool. And what else do you monitor for besides bacteria? Do you monitor for, like, heavy metals, for petroleum, you know, things? I mean, like, what other things would churn up in our waterways? That's that's a great question. (laughs) Uh, Modern wastewater treatment plants were built to handle domestic and light industrial uh, sewage. Uh It's not meant for metals or petroleum, things like that. So under New York State law, New York City has an industrial pretreatment program. Anyone who has a business in New York who has signed up in Albany to to run a business, has to report their chemical usage to DEP. And we have the right to monitor the amount of chemicals they use in any manufacturing process that they may have. And any excess chemicals that are not consumed are the responsibility of of that business to keep out of the sewer system. And we monitor those to make sure that that's not the case. And we're, and most people are very compliant. And uh, the only thing occasionally that happens is that maybe sometimes during a, a car accident, some oil will go down the sewer because the cars were in an accident and break part of the, the engine. Uh, those are rare. Right. And we have a way of skimming them off in the process 
so it doesn't become um, part of the effluent. It doesn't leave the plant. Any oil that would come in is captured during our process. Right. Jack, let's take a quick break. We'll come right back with Jim Pinn and uh, more about the Newtown Creek Wastewater Plant. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery. Thank you for listening to the show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. For more information, visit Cane5.com. And we are back. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And on the line with me is the one and only, the charismatic, the dynamic Jim Pinn, the superintendent of the Newtown Creek Wastewater Treatment Plant. And Jim, I want to thank you again for spending some time with me today. So we were talking about um, the various steps and we'd gotten through to the point where you have discharged the water back into the um, into the East River, in your case, but into any of the New York City waterways. And then we, I just wanted to quickly touch on the whole digester egg phenomenon because that's so cool and what happens to the biosolids once they've been essentially digested and turned into cake and then we're going right. to move on you from there the cake that's how we refer to it i know we use a lot of food like uh, kind of uh, signs here but that's that's how, that's how, it's easy for the for us to recognize it and also the general public when we speak about these things i think it makes so, total sense in one end and out the other i mean come on right that's right you got it you got it <laughs> So half of the sludge that we collect, as I stated before, gets returned back to the incoming sewage to help me manage the process and clean the water. The other half goes into the digester eggs. So the digester eggs are basically like your stomach. We heat them up at 98 degrees. We feed them three times a day. And after a period of 15 to 20 days, they produce a very stable and pathogenically free. That means without any kind of harmful microbiology left in in the sludge, uh, this sludge. And the sludge comes out the consistency of about pea soup. It's about 2.5% solids, but I think our listeners will understand that consistency based mm-hmm. on that soup analogy. This liquid sludge is then loaded into one of the several ships that DEP operates, and some folks might see it go up and down the East River proudly with the bow that states DEP. These tankers take this pea soup consistency and send it to one of our sister plants that have these spinning devices called centrifuges to take it and make it into that cake-like product that you referred to. Yeah. Now, now this cake meets all the conditions for beneficial reuse under the federal government's 503 policy, which is to take sewage sludge, municipal sewage sludge, and turn it into a useful product. So in this case, this product is eligible to be land-applied on grasslands that can grow grass as fodder for cattle to harvest off of. And that's one of the many ways that a New York City sludge can be used. It can be also used as a landfill cap and cover. We were able to use this as an intermediate step as landfill operators need to cover the day's worth of dumpings. Mm-hmm. They can use New York City's sewage sludge to make the appropriate level, a uh, layer. So it's, me, like a, it's, like a, that, it's like a layer uh, of mulch. Of right. Trash. Right. So um, it does have a useful life after it came out of you and I. That's excellent. I love that story. Okay, so now 
we were talking when we were at the plant. Remember, I was I kept asking you, pestering you, I should say, um, about the gases that build up in the digester eggs, one of which, the main one of which, I suppose, is methane. And I know that you guys are harnessing some of that methane um, in running the plant itself, which we should remind listeners is like a 57-acre you know, site, industrial site, with lots of things going on in it, right? So you have That's lots right, of Katie. use for... for That's right. Methane gas is the major off-gas of an anaerobically digested sludge. Anaerobically means without the presence of oxygen. Right. These microorganisms work without oxygen. They rely on other gases to live their lives in the digester. But their off gas is methane gas. Now, methane gas, um, sewer gas, swamp gas, a lot of different names. Mm-hmm. But most people don't realize that the methane gas is also the cooking gas that comes off of your stove. Commercial gas that's supplied by a gas utility, for instance, Keyspan or National Grid, comes from deep underground where millions of years ago the dinosaurs and plant life have rotted away and formed methane gas. So under the ground, digestion took place of that organic material. I'm able to do it on a much faster schedule, and therefore I'm making methane gas similar to the stuff that comes for your heating or for your cooking. That's the unique part of it. But what's not so unique is that this gas is about half the strength or the BTU concentration of your home fuel, your cooking gas or your heating gas. But still, we have appliances, boilers, that run in our facility here at Newtown Creek that can use that methane gas to make the hot water necessary to keep the digesters running and also to keep the buildings warm and to run the air conditioning systems in the summertime. So it's a fuel source that we do not let go to waste. We, we use it as much as possible. And um, that's how we get a beneficial use out of the digester methane gas. That's cool. Now, would energy companies be, I, I talked to one of your engineers and he said that there would, for, for us to use it in a, in a sort of consumer level, it would have to be, I guess, obviously concentrated, as you just pointed out. But would there be a lot of retrofitting of, say, say National Grid or, or uh, Con Ed decided that they wanted to use more methane from your plant or from other sources? Would they have to go through a lot of infrastructural changes in order to make that an option? There are some infrastructural changes, but basically what it amounts to is taking the gas that I described and removing CO2. 60% of the gas that I use is methane. The other 40% is CO2. Uh-huh. A national grid or, or Con Edison or the gas that comes to your home does not have that CO2 component. Right. So the infrastructure would mean some chillers that would, that would actually chill the gas, be able to remove the CO2, and then compress the gas to a normal pressure, and then you could enter it into the grid system. It's extremely doable. A lot of landfill gases are doing just that. Uh The idea here at Newtown Creek is that we're entertaining the idea, and we're in the beginnings of working some details out, that we would be the first New York, we would be the first nationally uh, wastewater treatment plant to consistently give methane gas to the consumers in the form of um, house gas that they, were, they are used to. That would be awesome because then it's like you're using it and it's not being released into the atmosphere in quite the same levels. And that not that what environmentalists are so worried about is the, you know, methane gas is one of the biggest of the greenhouse gases, right? It is, it so, is. And, you know, I guess your audience probably knows this too. Even though wastewater treatment plants have an awful lot of flow coming into it, the largest outlay of methane gas is, is cows. Cows um, all over the country produce more methane gas and are more harmful to the, to the ozone layer. Mm-hmm. But still, we're going to do our part. We're going to try to consume right. the gas in, in the most responsible way, reduce our carbon footprint, 
and get the benefit of everyone eating those big turkey dinners once a year and, you know, put all that gas back into the cooking stove for next year's turkey, turkey dinner. Jim, you are so adorable. Now, let's quickly jump forward because we're going to have to wrap this up in a few minutes. But I wanted to ask you about how did you guys deal with Sandy, with Hurricane Sandy? I mean, I was thinking about after I went on the tour, like the catch basins filling up and the rain flooding in and like all of that infrastructure just being totally overwhelmed. Because as you say, we have a very old system here in the city. What did you guys, how did you manage? Because we all continue to have fresh, clean drinking water, which I thought was a miracle. Tell us about what that was like, you know, that the that sort of emergency management system. Okay, well, we, we were well prepared for Sandy, but just one thing before we speak any sure. further, that the drinking water system comes from way upstate, oh, and yeah. none of the city's 14 wastewater treatment plants contribute to the drinking water system. Thank That's you for a, a pristine, that. uh, almost forest-like environment up in the Catskill region where everybody goes skiing, yeah. and that's where we get our fresh drinking water from. Right, but right. here in the city, um, Sandy was was very devastating. As you know, the flood maps that were drawn up years ago did not, did not anticipate a 500-year storm that we feel Sandy was, and many of the areas of Staten Island and the Rockaways and Lower Manhattan, parts of even Greenpoint, Brooklyn here, were flooded. Yeah. Um, city has an enormous amount of capacity in their wastewater treatment plants. About 3.8 billion gallons a day could pass through the treatment plants in form of rainwater and sewage. But a, a storm like Sandy was not so much from the rain. It was the high tides that entered onto the ground from, from the storm surge that caused the subways, the, the buildings, and, of course, most people's basements in those areas to be flooded. Uh, right. Over time, they were all pumped out, and we were able to handle that water through the system. We came out pretty much scot-free. There were some instances, but I think the infrastructure and, and the preparation that the city went through, we were, we, were in a, we were in good shape for Superstorm Sandy. Amazing. I think you guys do an amazing job. I really urge listeners to go out, you know, whenever those open uh, tour days are available, check the website. And that brings me to the end of this program because I want you to have a chance to talk about the Department of Environmental Protection, the educational programming that you guys do out at Newtown Creek. And also tell people what they can do to help you do your job better. Like, oh, that's so nice. Stop well, dumping just to get back to the Starbucks. tours, on the second Tuesday of every month at the Visitor Center located at 329 Greenpoint Avenue at the intersection of Humboldt and Greenpoint Avenue, mm-hmm. it's right down the block from the G train, the Manhattan Avenue G train, we, we run about a two-hour dissertation and tour Pretty much what the folks saw on Valentine's Day is repeated. So yeah. I invite anyone to come and, and listen here and learn, learn a little bit more about what goes on. But as New Yorkers, what you can all do is, is very simple for me, a couple of steps. But baby wipes have become very, very popular uh, with the advent of, you know, working moms, and everybody has to be fast about things. Uh, we would prefer if the, if the baby wipes went into the uh, household trash and not down the toilet. They are really detrimental to the treatment process, and it takes a lot of work to separate them from the waste stream uh, when they first come in. In addition to that, there's a lot of plastic things that we use on an everyday basis. You'd be surprised how many people throw them down the drain in the toilet, and we would hope that plastics stay out of our waste stream. And one of the final things you can do, everyone cooks, everyone loves to cook, everyone loves to eat, and me too, but the cooking greases that accumulate from the use of the stove need to be placed in a tin can, put it in the freezer, freeze it, and then put it out of the household trash on the curb during your collection day. Please don't put it down the drain. It's bad for your pipes, your plumbing, and it's, it's hard for me to deal with it here in the treatment plant. So if I can leave you with those three tips for the day, you'll make me a happier man. <laughs> well, Jim, this was fantastic. I hope people appreciate, uh, first of all, that, that you spent the time with us and also understand how amazing our wastewater treatment facilities are in New York and that those digester eggs. You're doing, you're processing about a million five gallon, gallons of wastewater a day. Am I correct in that? 
Well, actually, actually, it's about 230 million gallons, and, and we, we interface with about 1.5 million people. Maybe that's where the number got changed. I guess that's it. Anyway, well, listen, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate the time. Thank you to Mercedes for helping us organize this. And next week, my friends, uh, we will be talking with Gary Oppenheimer from Ample Harvest, talking about food waste in this country, a topic that is starting to really make headlines in the major media. So um, thanks for listening, and thanks to my sponsor, and thanks to my guest. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>